Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming to the first of the European Institute's FT Business Future of Europe public lectures. I'm Damien Chalmers, the head of the European Institute, and we're delighted today to launch the series for this academic year to have Commissioner Andries Pilbalks, who's in charge of the energy portfolio for the Commission. Now, Commissioner Pilbalks, I think... If anyone knows Europe, uh, it is him. In addition to having one of the most contentious portfolios uh, in the Commission, he has a very distinguished career back in Latvia. He was both Minister of Education and Minister of Finance. But he's really seen Europe from almost every perspective. He was central to the Latvians' successful application for EU membership as their ambassador. He has acted as a head of cabinet, so he's seen it very much from the Commission functionaries perspective, and he is now obviously a commissioner. Not only that, he is probably the commissioner that brings, in this most difficult of all areas, most praise. He uh, has been voted by the uh, economist, although they probably won't thank me for reminding them this, the Eurocrat of the Year, and been praised by the Greens. So anyone that can be praised simultaneously by both the economist and the Greens is always very interesting to hear. He's going to speak for half an hour on Europe's emerging new energy policy, and then is happy to take questions. Thank you, Professor. First of all, I am very honored to get this invitation to speak in London School of Economics, so I'm very privileged to be here. But after a very warm introduction you made to me, I can't not mention that in the audience is also my good friend who is now ambassador of Latvia in the UK, and he was also Minister of Foreign Affairs during the whole or nearly whole accession process of Latvia to the EU. So if somebody would like some questions about Latvia's accession, I think he's perhaps the best person to do this. So I am very pleased in those of you, you, you did come to this presentation. Well, I perhaps will start definitely from the issues that uh, are most challenging to, to Europe and I think to the world. Well, it is that uh, the challenges, uh, I would say, described is the best usually by some scientists. And I think the Dutch chemistry Nobel Prize winner, Paul uh, Krutzen, has described as the issue of Anthropocene, the concept or, far, or fact that the first time in the Earth's history Mankind's activities are fundamentally and negatively affecting the physical system of our planet. In particular, because of a seemingly unstoppable thirst for more and more hydrocarbon-based energy, we are on the path to change our climate, and energy plays a very particular role in it, because uh, CO2 emissions from energy sector makes 80% of all greenhouse gases. At the same time, it's very clear that we are also creating uh, huge risks to stability of economic system. Well, we got used to oil price, but still $86 per barrel is some warning that we should address rather seriously. I could mention just one example. We have uh, the most distinguished and experienced minister of energy in Algeria, and usually everybody relates the price development with, uh, with um, oil prices. And, um, 
and he was asked in June what he would say that is a fair price for OPEC for oil. And he said between 50 to 60 dollars per barrel. I don't know if he would keep these words because fair price is not exactly the price in the spot market on the day. But still it shows that there is a huge challenge for economic systems. Because uh, resources of oil and gas are more and more scarce. And there is particular challenge because these resources are becoming concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. And again, I would like to cite the minister who is very positive and market-minded. Well, he usually announced that debate is about investment in this country's resources. And he said, well, now with the price, I have money, I have technology because I can buy because of the money, I have resources. Well, and when somebody would come to invest, I would always ask, what can you bring that I can't buy for money? And it means, do you have another assets for swaps? Or you have something, access to consumers? So the whole situation of the supply-demand balance in energy definitely changed. So that's why would, I would say that we have two basic challenges at the same time. It is uh, climate change, I would say the biggest challenge by far, but also security of energy supply is far from being granted. And for Europe there is additional uh, dimension. Because at the end, the real question is also how do we master these challenges in a way that Europe does not lose competitiveness. Um, and part is because if the prices are going up, you pay more and more for gas and oil resources. But as a result, you subsidize the prices in oil and gas consuming countries that attract manufacturing industry. So in a way you are like in a circle and that is definitely you need to square the, um, this circle. Well, I would still reflect on climate change, not only because I would like to challenge Al Gore and receive the Nobel Prize, I doubt that I will manage to, to do for the next year, but still I think the ch challenge is sometimes not really understood completely clearly. Well, the International Panel on Climate Change points that uh, greenhouse gas emissions have increased by more than 70% since 1970. And in energy sector, it's increased by 145%. And if we see the trends that uh, CO2 emissions will grow by a further, perhaps even 100% by 2030, and particularly in developing countries, and as the next report of IPCC will be issued on the 7th of November, I will believe that it will give us even more uncomfortable reading. Why am I naming these figures? Because um, these figures are sometimes underestimated. We recently calculated what will happen if we will delay carbon sequestration um, for seven years, because budget cycling in the EU is very particular. We agree until 2013, so that means to change the budget we need again to come to rebate and some other very tricky issues. And that will mean that um, actually we will increase, the summary that we got, it's like near increase by three years of CO2 emissions. So if you don't do postpone for seven years, that means that you like add three more years of CO2 emissions.
So that is very clear. You can see that each year of delay of action brings more reversibility in fight against climate change. But the basic trends that I think we should not underestimate is definitely coming not only from growth of global economic growth, but also from rapidly expanding global population. The United Nations estimates that by 2050, the world population will grow from 6.6 billion to 9 billion. So that means growth of 50%. And when one takes into account a predicted growth in wealth and the economy, this means, roughly speaking, that if we continue down the present path, we can expect that by 2050, the world economy will be between four and six times larger than it is today. So that means that the current process is clearly unsustainable. And if we wish to prevent the world's economy hitting boundaries that will cause the real damage to human well-being due to pollution, mass migration, climate change, diseases and species extinction, change is necessary, change is inevitable, and it almost certainly needs to start in Europe where is very clear political commitment to global to combat global warming. Furthermore, I think we should also realize that climate change is not something abstract that could be dealt with only by legislation. But I think it is also important to realize that it is something personal. Each of us in our everyday life definitely make uh, some type of contribution for CO2 emissions. Well, I know that some of them are unavoidable, but definitely there is a lot of opportunities for us all to really take account of our actions that we, we, we do. Do we have take a bike when we can do this? Do we uh, avoid some unnecessary traveling? Do we switch off the lights when they are not needed? And so on and so on. Because with all these small things, actually, the real change could happen. So it's very clear that uh, we need to lead not only, not only by, uh, by, by legal means and announcement of the target, but I think that everybody's everyday's life in, uh, and everyday's perception. Well, I would say that there is good example, perhaps less scale example, where we have been successful. I mean that 1990, um, there have been so-called CFCs problem, which was destroying Earth's ozone layer. And um, dealing with it, according to Jeffrey Sachs, is five stages. First of all, identification of the problem. Secondly, when science identified the problem, the vested interests, the makers of CFCs and aerosols in this case, publicly and actively doubted the science. It was not so long enough that oil industry was against the actually ac ac uh, agreeing that the climate change is happening. And then by third stage, this is a crucial stage, came public acceptance the realization that the problem really is real and personal one, and the action must be taken. Then the fourth stage, it is scientists that brought the solutions and technology. And 
in this stage, the fifth stage came when the companies said, yes, we can deal with it. And, and from this point of view, a clear international agreement was quickly reached. On climate change, definitely the path is similar, but real moment of truth will come in Bali at the end of the year, because I believe it is important that Bali brings success, if not exactly agreeing on cap for the next emission period, but definitely make real progress for the, for the finding solution. Well, I will also briefly again reflect on the security of supply. The International Energy Agency predicts that oil demands will increase over the coming year by 1.9 year per annum. And um, I will just mention one additional point and statistics in particular. The number of cars in China has increased from 4 million in 2000 to 19 million in 2005. This is expected to reach 55 million within three years and over 130 million by 2020. On the basis of number of cars per citizen, even this 2020 figure for China would be far below EU countries where we have typically over 400 vehicles per thousand inhabitants. And in the United States, well, uh, even Europeans can't manage so far, so 700 per thousand inhabitants. So we see the development and normally all countries follow this trend. I believe that the same will, will follow India and other countries, not only in Asia, but in other, other regions as well. We know that there are oil reserves for decades, but as I mentioned, it does not mean that production capacity can increase forever. In any event, the consumption pattern means that within decades, the capacity to increase oil production will be really in the hands of few countries. And then I will come to the quote from International Energy Agency. The ability and willingness of major oil and gas producers to step up investment in order to meet rising global demand are particularly uncertain. Well, I would say perhaps it's a bit simplified uh, conclusion because dealing with all the issues starting from Sakhalin, Kovika, Kashagan, I have seen two major trends. The trends that I would mention in this respect that sometimes we simplify that the countries just need to invest and there will be plenty of oil and gas and it will be very cheap. And all projects, all big oil and gas projects are in delay. And secondly, all the costs increases, not, not least doubles, but increase sometimes tenfold. And additionally, there comes some particularity. When we speak of environmental challenges, well, we are usually respecting. But unfortunately, unfortunately, I would say, in these countries, environmental aspect is playing the role. And for example, Kashagan field brings a lot of also environmental challenges for the region because there is a lot of sulfur. And there is a need to find the way to deal with it. So that means that even if we say that oil and gas reserves are substantial, Producing them is getting much more tricky and costs more, costs much more. And environmental challenges are much more 
existing in the countries of the production. So that's very clear that these issues should be dealt with. Well, as a result for EU, um, I have the example that um, all the trends makes particular challenge. Uh, first of all, our import dependence will grow. Secondly, if oil price would rose to $100 per barrel, EU27 energy total import bill will increase by around 170 billion of euros. So that means 350 euros per every euro for each citizen. And today, as you know, oil price is 86. So actually 100 is not any more good example. Well, I'm sorry for this, but things change so rapidly. What is the thinking of where actually the measures that the Commission has proposed are leading? Well, all the measures that I will be speaking about definitely shows that to address the security uh, challenge and climate change challenge is actually we can move in parallel. With exception of one particular issue where I also have some difficulty and at the same time understanding that it is crucial. And I mean carbon sequestration. For this, that's not so much familiar with the concept. I would say carbon sequestration is very, concept is very simple. You separate CO2 before combustion or after combustion, transport and store it. So there is no emissions of CO2 in the atmosphere. The difficulties with it, I wouldn't speak about legal and, and others, is it's cost a lot. Second, uh, it is also you lose power. So you need more fossil fuel actually to burn. So its efficiency falls down. And this is very clear that from security supply point of view, oil and uh, gas value all the trade, but coal and lignite, it's much easier commodity and it you can deal much easier with it. But if you don't have carbon sequestration, then as a result, as a result, the risk is that you can't follow the climate change ambition. So for this reason, this particular technology is, I would say, the biggest challenge that we face. Because it's illogical from security of supply point of view, at the same time absolutely necessary for dealing with climate change. But well, to get moving in political, and particularly in the EU with 27 countries, you clearly need to have headline objective. And EU made it saying 20% less CO2 emissions by 2020 is this what we are committing ourselves to achieve. And for me it means also completely new policy in energy because less CO2 means also consumption, less consumption, more greener energy and so on and so on. So it also means development of new technology. But what is the key driver of change? And there are two possibilities. Well, it's always you need price carbon because to de get development of new technology you need to price carbon. One way is to tax. Economist is very mentioned. Economist is very much about carbon tax. Well, for the EU, strangely enough, being very conservative per nature and loving to tax everything and high taxation put in place, there was at some day stage critical decision to go for emission trading scheme. 
So that means that you cut uh, allowances that could be used for emission of CO2 and trade them. So that means you promote more efficient and help new technologies to bring. And I was very surprised, actually, that all 27 countries endorsed it in the Council. So that means that the next step, what I need to do, because energy investments uh, has particularly, it's, it's a lot of, it costs a lot, it's long term, and thirdly, it's political sensitive. That I need now, with my colleagues in the Commission, to, promote, to propose a mission trading scheme after 2012. Because only then the industry gets a real impression what the price of CO2 could be and which technologies bring the best returns. And from this point of view, in December, we will propose the next stage of emission trading scheme after 2002. There have been a lot of hesitation, should we do before Bali or not? And I think it is very clear if we are really committed, we should come with visible before Bali. Because how you can lead if you don't take yourself an example? And as I told, as a basic driver for energy change, for energy revolution or technology revolution, you need this development anyhow. So it is very good that we will manage to commit it. And there will be a particular, particular uh, focus on it. First, until now, we went with national allocation uh, schemes or national allocation plan. Well, national allocation plan meant that each country gets allowances for free and then divide. Well, as a result, if you have internal market, one country does it in one way and another country do it in different way. Yesterday in Riga, I got a question. Commissioner, well, you would suggest that allowances for free would be given to energy industry? or to manufacturing industry. So, well, you can say one way or another. I would say for manufacturing industry, perhaps it's much more clear because they are in global competition. But you can say also to energy industry because energy is in each costs also consists of energy. So it's not easy question. And as a result, the basic concept is stemming that for energy and for aviation, it will be Europe-wide cap where will be auctioned. So auctioning that will decide the price, governments will get revenues that they could use to promote green energy, energy efficiency measures, or research and development. And from another side, it's not market, is not split. I think it is a very basic approach. I hope that it will be agreed, but I believe that most of my colleagues really share such a type of approach. For the Energy-intensive industry, there is a more tricky situation. Because for energy-intensive industry, we have the situation if you don't take care, you have so-called carbon leakage. That means that industry moves to another place which is less vigorous for CO2 emissions, and as a result, well, you don't take it, achieve its goal. So for this, we are thinking about some type of... Uh, benchmarking scheme on allowances perhaps for free, but based on benchmarking and in this way trying to keep them under control. But um, I hope that we will find global solution because if everybody is in, then you don't need to think about such a sophisticated uh, solution. And that's why actually we are so sometimes people think obsessed about global cap 
because global collapse gives certainties that world market is not perturbated and you don't have this carbon leakage in from the region which more tougher regulation industry goes to another and actually pollutes makes the same pollution so I think it is clearly that we should deal with this another issue is perhaps where I have a lot of difficulties perhaps to explain in this country is a renewable energy target because the EU Council, after a long debate, agreed on 20% renewable energy target for 2020. And the usual method is that you split the target between member countries. Because the EU, well, this is also definitely a matter of sovereignty. And each country would like to have each own renewable support policy. And the basic reason why we need this particular focus on renewable is that it is new technology. And to come into the energy market, it's not easy. If you don't do this with real tools, with legislative tools, you will never make the change. So as a result, renewable energy will be always marginal and not used. And we have seen by a very simple example, I know that some people are skeptical about European directives, but there are three renewable areas. Electricity, uh, Biofuels, heating and cooling. For electricity, we have the most strongest European instrument. And the best results is actually there. For biofuels, the instrument is already weakened, but there is some development. And for heating and cooling, since years, there have been no development of the renewable technologies in this area. And it's not because there are not these technologies, because the political measures to support such a development haven't been. So this target for 2020, 20% renewable, is a target that helps to penetrate this uh, renewable technologies inside. Which ones will take the, the place? Well, in my opinion, at least three I can definitely name. It's wind energy, where cost efficiency is huge, and actually technological def development is, is very, very advanced. I believe also solar, concentrated solar power, or photovoltaics, and third, more and more use of biomass. There is sometimes cause that uh, additional sub-target agreed, 10% for biofuels, was wrong. Well, I would disagree with this, because there is usually expectation that biofuels are responsible for everything. At the same time, we forget the global grain market is, uh, well, it's global market. And the most advanced country in using biofuels is actually Brazil. And the most produced bioethanol is from sugarcane. And we have the lowest prices for sugar today. So there is no clear correlation between, between the biofuels and, and also basic food prices. But to avoid any misunderstanding, to avoid any development perceived that is wrong for the environment, in this directive there will be biofuels sustainability scheme. Well, unfortunately, rather bureaucratic scheme. But whoever would like to sell their biofuels, they first of all will need to prove that it makes less CO2 emissions. Well, the technologies are more or less clear, and you can easily prove this. And second, that you should keep record from which lands it is produced. So in this respect, they will clearly guarantee that biofuels used in the European Union 
will be definitely produced in a sustainable uh, way. But this brings me to the next challenge. Because if you speak about biofuels, you can speak about also food. And it's a lot of times meant that um, development of biofuels will mean more palm oil being produced and rainforest destroyed. But palm oil will be produced also for other consumption. And forests will be destroyed for this reason. So the actual challenge is how to develop global sustainability scheme that keep forests where they are, that they are preserved and not destroyed. That agricultural land is used in the way that does less CO2 emissions, not more CO2 emissions. Actually, it's the first example where we try to think any development in the market for some sustainability point of view. And I believe, I believe that we will be successful in it. Third area that I would mention, it is uh, energy efficiency. Well, energy efficiency is such an easy thing to, to take, and at the same time, we are relying very slowly to it. Because today, even in the EU, with all the focus, there is a growing demand. And there are three areas I think that should address. One is legal area. So with legal instruments for buildings, for energy-consuming appliances, and at the end of the year, Commission will come proposal for the emission level from cars. You know this limits 120 grams of CO2 emissions per kilometer from car uh, in overage with combined measures and 130 grams of CO2 from car uh, on, on the kilometer uh, just by manufacturer effort. But I believe that this type of measures that you definitely limit or force or regulate the producer to take particular measure to produce energy efficient equipment is not sufficient. Because a lot of things is already in the market. To change the car fleet will take years. I don't know how many of you have cars. I believe more or less so, everybody. At the same time, will you change it in the next two years? Well, uh, uh, for more efficient car? That's a good question. So that means, that brings me to the second, to change, to make a change, there should be incentives. Tax incentives, regulation incentives, and so on. And I think it is a basic thing that we should understand that energy efficiency will come on the scale if there is incentive. And the third point that is extremely important for energy efficiency is also organization. I yesterday came from, uh, well, no, this morning, from Riga to Brussels. Well, if you would say the traffic, see the traffic jams in Riga, it's, it's incredible. It's just incredible. London is lucky. You are lucky to live in here. So, and the reason is there is practically no measures taken for really to decrease the traffic congestion. And as the number of cars have grown so fast, the city is suffocating from cars. And who is responsible for it? Drivers? No, I would say city municipality. It should take the measures or limit or provide alternatives. Uh, I don't see, I have not seen any lines for public transport. If the public transport would move, I would believe that the, the, the traffic congestion will be less. But this is the measures that could take, be taken by actually the local municipalities. 
And I very much believe that uh, the London's lead in this respect is very, very helpful. And I believe more and more cities will follow it because you can achieve a lot by real change in organization. Well, it is additional areas that we need to think, I would say. The fourth area is research and development. I have seen the figures that actually the spendings in research development since um, early 80s has declined in energy research. And the reason was perception that we have immense um, amounts of oil and gas and why to bother? Just drill and uh, oil will come out, gas will come out, and uh, if it will be not sufficient, just call OPEC to produce more. And the things are not so simple. So as a result, we really need to make an effort. But for Europe, the effort is very particular because we are usually very well, at least in European, to fundament a lot of research, a lot of projects, but not very much demanding that they will be advancing technological change immediately or targeting. And as I mentioned with carbon sequestration example, now the things are different. We really need to achieve that by 2015 we have 10 to 12, perhaps less, perhaps more, uh, demonstration full-scale carbon sequestration power plants, and they should be operating. Because if we don't have, that means we produce more CO2 and we are actually late uh, in our political ambition. Now I will come to my, my favorite point, because I think um, why I'm here invited. Well, it is because um, Europe is strong, but it could be much more stronger. And it's what makes Europe strong, its internal market. Uh, when I came to the office, it was 2004, and then I had one of the leading uh, uh, chief executive officer of uh, uh, BP next to the table, and he was quite skeptical about future for you, you know, about those develop of constitutional treaty and so on. And I said, look here, I don't believe that the EU will get weakened because there is one fundamental element that drives us forward. It is the EU internal market. Perhaps it is a bit simplification because we speak about values and so on. But it is really the driver forward. And the EU internal market is the energy market, is the one that actually is needed to provide the answer to all the challenges, security of supply, climate change, and also competitive. So without a competitive and efficient European gas and electricity market, our citizens will pay too high prices for what is one of the fundamental and basic of their daily needs. We have a relatively highly cost economy in terms of labor costs. This will not change. But we cannot let our costs of capital in other respects to rise. And if we do, we lose competitiveness, wealth, and jobs. Well, what I have been proposing, it's not, I would not call any more third liberalization package. Because the package proposed on the 19th of September as a legal measure actually brings something different into game. Liberalization was that each of consumer has a right to choose its energy supplier. And it's basic in any market. 
because it's a basic dryer that consumer have a choice. Legally, from the 1st of July 2007, we have this in place. But the difficulty was that the market is partially closed, and second, there are not sufficient flows across the border, or there is unclear situation with investment. And to address this, actually we addressed a couple of issues. First of all, it's unbundling. Well, UK has ownership unbundling, and definitely it's proved to be very, very efficient. Because for two reasons. First, it really separates the network activity, ownership unbundling, from, from the supply and generation. Because when there is no even perception that you can manipulate the networks or foreclose the networks, only then you have competitive, competitive energy market. I think it is fundamental truth that still need to be brought through. But, as in a lot of countries, there is also another debate coming. Should, what is the difference if you separate networks in privately owned from the generation and state-owned. Because there is a lot of perception that if you do this, that you destroy somehow also the balance in favor of state-owned companies. You know this also, the stories about GDF's West merger, about um, nationalization of Swiss. And I disagree completely. And I think in today's financial times, people have overlooked uh, ironical remark of Nicolas Sarkozy that was made saying that he is nationalized. Actually, he is privatizing GDF, to be honest. Yeah? So he is moving clearly in market direction. But the basic issue is how you don't touch on property, because this is the issue that we needed to answer. And the answer was, if you don't agree with ownership and bundling, that there could be opt-out independent system operator where you keep the assets, but you pass all the operation, and including also ordering the necessary investment in the network to independent system operator. And on top of it, you should also make a situation, another argument was, if you do this, then Casprom comes in and buys all the network. Well, um, there is it now in safeguard clause that makes the same conditions for EU companies and external companies. And as a result, as a result, well, we have fundamentally, I think, made comprehensive proposal. I to date met, met Russian minister. Well, he was not, I would say, um, particularly happy about proposal, but I think his reaction was very, very pragmatic. Let's see the same letter. Let's see the letter. Let's analyze an expert of what does it make and only then to decide. And I would say for praising Russia for Ninovom, because uh, it is important to see where in last country is that made such shape of ownership and bundling uh, with success. And it's, strangely enough, it's Russia in electricity. Because today we have at least three big European companies around investing around 10 billion in the Russian generation sector, because exactly what happened. They liberated the market, they separated generation companies, they decided to privatize generation companies, but keeping network independent. And immediately, European companies decided to jump in because in parallel, also market for prices works in Russia. 
So prices sometimes in Russia today are higher compared with the EU market or at least parts of the EU market. So I think it is a fundamental package point that definitely increases the necessary competition in the EU market and brings new suppliers to the market because then they have security that they will not be mistreated. Second issue was regulation. And this is a completely new approach to the EU. Because usually EU internal market works in the way you put the same conditions, you put the same conditions for everybody. And as a result, you make 27 different regulations based on the same principles. Now, first time, we establish, like each regulator had its, its national hat and European hat, to, to have the regulation homogeneous across the whole European Union and for the decisions on the Europe-wide scale, you establish a uh, European agency for cooperation of uh, regulators that decides of the binding rules on cross-border energy flows. Third element is uh, issue of uh, uh, establishing network cooperation. So there will be EU network cooperation bodies that will produce 10 years long um, investment plans and also will produce codes necessary for working, uh, working in the market. Well, I, I saw that I am have speaking too long, uh, longer than I proposed, and I have not addressed a couple of issues like nuclear, like international relations. But I would really say that I believe that we are on the right track. All measures taken are necessary. Perhaps I would be happy if we would have taken these measures some years already ago. But, well, we are where we are, and I think that uh, it's clearly it's confidence that comes that all 27 member countries support the measure. Perhaps not always in the detail, but I would say all of them are engaged in constructive work. And I believe my package of internal energy market is actually the first ever where all 27 countries will first time to try to find the common response to the Commission proposal in rather sensitive area. But I am confident that it will be successful. Thank you very much for your patience, and I will be happy to answer all the questions you will have. We have about 15 minutes for questions. Could, there's a roving mic. Could questioners identify themselves and please keep their questions as concise as possible? Um, the gentleman there in the orange. Um, Andre from uh, University College London. Uh, my question is regarding the... Uh, the overall policy of European, of European Union in terms of for, for the energy. Um, I agree and very much support to uh, uh, everything that European Union is trying to do right now to tackle the climate change and the, uh, um, the problems we have in energy field. But, uh, Mr. Pielberg, don't you think that the positive effects of uh, implement, implementation of policies of liberalization and CO2 emissions reduction uh, sort of neutralize each other and even aggravate the overall situation. So what do I mean? Is that when we liberalize the market, then the private companies 
they try to diminish the CO2 emission, if you just give them the task to diminish the emission by 20%, they try to diminish it with less cost possible. So what they do, they basically just shift the production of energy from European Union to neighboring states. So they, first of all, they close coal production in Europe, so they start to import coal. Secondly, what they do, um, they, uh, in, yes, they just close the uh, electricity production from coal, and they start to import uh, natural gas, let's say, from Russia. And we know that in Russia, uh, the overall efficiency of uh, gas production barely exceeds 50%. So basically, basically, it seems to be that even the overall um, effects that we try to achieve, so to reduce the uh, CO2 emission, uh, does it only, let's say, in Europe, but uh, it increases it in neighboring countries. Um, don't you think that uh, maybe those two politics do not... Okay, thank you. We'll, we'll bundle two or three questions together. If I could... Okay, um... The lady, the lady just, uh, just in front of the gentleman with the orange sweater. Um, there are two sort of trends at the moment. One is uh, rising demand in Russia and in Europe for energy, and one is that uh, Russian energy production has reached a plateau and is suffering from chronic underinvestment. So some have predicted there will be a, uh, a gas gap by as early as 2010. So what is the EU doing about it, and have you sort of had any communications with your Rus uh, Russian counterparts, and what do they think about it? And one more question. The, the gentleman in the cream jacket, just at the back there. Just to your, to your right, there's a microphone. Thank you. Um, dear Commissioner, um, uh, first of all, my name is Rokos Grauskas. I'm from LSE. And I'd like to ask you um, what measures have been taken and uh, do you think should be taken in order to um, limit Gazprom's uh, monopolizing tendencies or, or Gazprom, uh, to limit Gazprom from gaining monopolistic tendencies in the EU, EU's energy market? And in general, how do you think, to what extent that is needed? Thank you. Well, for the first, well, the answer is definitely that we need global agreement. Um, Bali should be success because otherwise you are completely right none of the measures could uh, save us for carbon leakage that is very clear but what I would say encouragement I know that people sometimes are discouraged uh, from uh, the meeting global economies meeting in Washington but if I see the old development with US administration I would see it was definitely change in the right direction China is implementing energy efficiency program renewable. India, well, there are more, because of the structure, or political structure of India, it is more complex, but it's also interested in this issue. For Russia, one of the biggest issues that we have now in our relations is really promotion of energy efficiency in Russia. So I believe, I believe that we have all the chance to achieve it. And main driver, I would say, why I think particularly China is moving, that everybody understands that with the growth that we have, we are not sustainable to supply energy resources. So if you, don't, you are not able to supply energy resources, prepare for unrest. So that means, that means that everybody, even if he has doubts about climate change and doesn't admit it publicly, I have met a lot of such type of people, they will buy energy security argument. 
Because there, it's clearly, energy efficiency, renewables, is the one you need to develop a new technology to really to proceed further to supply their economies and their welfare. So that's why I think the international uh, activities are important. But if you really would like to encourage, you need to lead and to lead by example, and EU is doing it. It's not altruistic, but I don't see, well, that we should, we have a right to fail. So that's what I, I mean. So that's... Uh, Perhaps not exhaustive answer, but as good as I can to say today. Uh, Russia. Oh. Well, I today met Russian minister. As I told, we discussed uh, for hours uh, uh, the issues. And also Gazprom issue. The relations are rather, that I would describe, is definitely interdependence. Because for us, it's 25% of oil and gas supply, but oil, definitely you could, if there is still oil, you can get from other supplier. For gas, it's more tricky. But it is definitely also in interest of Russia because it comes 60% of revenues. So it is extremely hard to really to believe that you will not try to fulfill your contractual obligations. And so far, I definitely can give a full authority the Russian supplier, Gazprom, has always fulfilled contractual uh, obligation. So that means, that means that we need to take into account only the tendency that by some year there will be no opportunities to expect increase of gas supplies from Russia. And preparing for this, you have alternatives to diversify gas supply, and we are working very much in Caspian Sea, the area, and LNG, and prepare alternatives, and alternatives are renewable energy. And in the meantime, keep a strong and clear-cut and pragmatic relations with Russia that I am doing. We agreed today an early warning mechanism, uh, well, in the case of supply disruption, and if you have well-developed internal market with a lot of diversified possibilities for private initiative to supply with energy, then I would say EU market with 500 million citizens, with 27 countries, it is powerful too. Nobody will go against it if you are strong enough and you create the common approach. And there is one missing element still that we need to work, but we have improved greatly, and reform treaty will help us to move in this direction, to move in external energy relations, what is called to speak with one voice. What example I would mention is with South Stream. South Stream project, as per se, is quite interesting. But what we need to avoid is that there are countries trying to buy in or being taken by one. Because if one country takes decision of support, perhaps a neighbor country will disagree. And this will completely destroy the unity inside the European Union. So the difficulties that perhaps we face is less with Russia. It's more with ourselves. Because if you are not efficient, if you don't have alternatives, then you also are weak towards big supply. And as I told, Russia has a huge interest to deliver resources. Uh, just one, one, one uh, just example. After the publication of the package about this third country clause, there was not political outcry of Russia. The answer was very, very pragmatic. There was no outcry, oh, Europe does not like us, we will make all supplies to China. No such a supply was, was statement was never taken by anybody, including also Gazprom, that in previous time 
was rather free in expressing this view because Russia value market, markets that they know and they could work in. And I believe this is a guarantee that the relations will be reasonable. The challenges that we face is definitely with the growth of demand in Russia and development in Russia itself. But there the interest is very much in common. Energy efficiency measures should be applied in Russia more even vigorously than in EU. And if they will be on the level of the EU, there will be plenty of gas ready for report, even by current production levels. So I think dialogue is the one thing that only keeps us in reasonable and pragmatic and positive and forward-looking relations with Russia. Okay, uh, the lady in the blue cell. Hello, Sonia Silva from LSE. Um, I have uh, just two quick questions. Is there a just give it to one, please. Is there a nuclear policy for Europe? The, does Europe want to go for nuclear? And uh, what do you think is Europe's role, if any, in helping the world's energy challenge? For example, look, thinking of India and China, um, the use of coal. Uh, can Europe do something to, to, to meet the world energy demand? Okay, I'll take one, just the lady right at the very back on the balcony. Uh, Linda Corsia, LSE. Um, the, the dominant global governance framework really is uh, international trade agreements. Uh, how far are, are international trade agreements and, and the EU's um, position on international trade agreements taken into account with the energy policy? Because it does seem, this follows on a lot from the first question, it does seem that they are quite contradictory in many regards and is the trade agenda, the international trade agenda, which has the compulsion and the strength. And one final question, the gentleman, gentleman there on the, on the bulk in the top, top row. Uh, Tom Hashimoto from uh, LSE. Uh, my question is also on Korea. Uh, for example, France is now uh, taking a lot, lots of measurement in a nuclear power plant, and a nuclear, nuclear energy is material producing country requires technique which cannot, they, they cannot produce otherwise. So uh, European country, especially France, can produce those uh, technology in exchange with the material, so it's not dependency, it is interdependency. My question is in the European uh, Commission and uh, within the European Union, what is those uh, countries such as France, their opinion about nuclear energy? Thank you. Well, nuclear is in Europe and will stay in Europe and necessary. It gives uh, less CO2 emission. It is uh, for security of supply, and it is technologies that are being developed. There are some decisions that should be taken, uh, and uh, there was on Friday, first time ever, high-level group with all the 27 countries' regulators met on the nuclear safety issue, the commissioning, and waste issues. So there is common policy emerging, but at the same time, Austria will never build nuclear power station. Uh, Greece will never build it, Cyprus will never build it, but they will be tolerated if it's built in neighbor country, because electrons does not dip very much, there is not too much difference if it's produced by gas or by nuclear power. So it will be continued, and I think it is important. It is important to keep it and uh, develop this technology. 
Und in der entscheidenden Call It is carbon sequestration is answer. We have signed memorandum of understanding with China about cooperation in carbon sequestration. So this is technology that is needed because we can't avoid using coal in China, India, and the United States. So that's why I think this is crucial importance for this technology. In Europe, if not for security of supply reasons, I could say, well, perhaps we can do it. But even in Europe, we need this technology in place. For international trade agreements, all the decisions taken have been in complete conformity in our trade obligations and also what is discussed on WTO and Doha. But if you would look on the trade agreements, they don't say too much on energy. Energy is very, very vaguely present, and this is very particular. And last, again, on nuclear, uh, technology is developing. We are launching also R&D uh, platform on sustainable use of nuclear um, because there are issues that could be always improved. Safety could always be improved. Security of nuclear waste could always be improved. Treatment of nuclear waste could always be improved. So it is a work in making. But as I told, nuclear energy has a right to be, but it's to the citizens of the independent member countries to decide does they agree with such a type of a development? And I would say one country which is a good example, it's Finland. Finland has a full consensus after thorough debate that nuclear has a right to be. It's not reversible, so they agree that it is. There is decision how to treat waste, full decision, and they're also building a storage facility for high-level radioactive waste. So I would say one example of the country where it has clear perspectives and they are building one block with uh, 100, uh, 600 megawatt uh, um, capacity. And uh, uh, there is also a second that will be built because the technology is improving. And it makes sense if you would see in the country that has a basic need for manufacturing supplies. Because with renewables, the difficulty is that uh, you need base load. And the energy scenario from Greenpeace, if you would follow this another world, it avoids nuclear, it avoids coal, but there is one very basic element in this strategy. It's a gas, plenty of gas that you need to use. And we see that with gas supply, well, we are not where we have been two years ago. So that's why I would say this Greenpeace strategy scenario was very good before the high oil prices and particular development on the market. Nowadays, we should be more looking more broadly. What elements we need to really provide for fight against climate change? So gas enough is not sufficient. There were a number of, uh, number of other questions, but unfortunately, because we've run out of time, I've got to wrap up uh, this fantastic session. I've got a couple of announcements. Firstly, the next uh, Future of Europe uh, lecture is, on, is this Thursday. It's coming thick and fast. It's by the Foreign Minister, Mr. Antonio Milosoki of the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, the most recent candidate state. We will be talking about their progress, so it promises to be fascinating. It will be five o'clock in this room. The second announcement is really to thank the Commissioner for such a thoughtful and thought-provoking speech. What he didn't tell you was he was up at quarter to four this morning, so to really to hold us in your hands and to answer all these things and to come over here is, was really extraordinary. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Very much.